Welcome to my podcast, Follow Your Bliss, with me, Nicola Fisher. I'll be talking to people who inspire me and asking them about the journeys they've taken navigating change and how this has led them to find fulfilment and purpose. If you're on a quest to create a meaningful life for yourself, I hope these conversations inspire you too. My guest on the podcast today is Catherine May. Catherine is an author. She writes fiction and memoir, and her most recent book is Wintering, which is the story of Catherine's year-long journey through her own personal winter. I absolutely loved Wintering from the very beginning, and I especially enjoyed Catherine's way with words and her distinctive voice. And I was fascinated by Catherine's account of the journeys we take through the various seasons and cycles of our lives. This was a book I really didn't want to put down, and I was absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with Catherine. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I came across Wintering, and it was just one of those books that really spoke to me. And it very much lines up with all the things that I talk about at Seed to Source. Um, And I was interested in the impact that the natural world has on you. Um, And you talk about um, moving through winter and having these fallow periods. And how important is aligning with nature to you? I think it's getting increasingly important to me as I get older. I think I grew up like loads of people not really being much in contact with nature actually it wasn't a big part of my childhood um and as I've got older I think I have learned to just engage really with the seasons and it's become really really important I don't really know what the magic of it is but it helps I think in terms of knowing that you're part of a bigger system and that your body responds to it and your mind responds to it Um, And it helps you to kind of get the measure of how the seasons are moving on and how the world is moving on. There's something about putting yourself in context um, that happens when you start to really engage with the natural world. Yeah. And you're very much into your swimming and you love the water. And (laughs) you say that water resets you. Mm. Um, It's a place where you feel perfectly at home. I found that really interesting. But what I found really interesting was it wasn't so much about swimming miles and miles but it was just being in the water as much as anything yeah I mean actually I think I've realized fairly recently that I'm not that much of a good swimmer I'm just an enthusiastic one um I never learned to swim properly as a child I you know self-taught um I never went to lessons or anything like that um and I have always loved being in the sea, but I don't really like being in swimming pools. I find them really unpleasant. I hate the smell of them. I hate how busy they are. Um, I hate that they're indoors, actually, I think. Um, so I like getting into the sea and kind of bobbing around. Um, <laughs> there's no competitiveness about it. And there's certainly uh, no kind of gung-ho, macho you know, <laughs> stuff going on. Um, I don't go anywhere. I just like to get into the sea and be in it for a while um, and tread water. You know, I might swim up and down a tiny bit, but uh, I'm not on any particular mission. And when I hear about people doing these kind of peer-to-peer races, I just think, God, that's absolutely not what I was doing at all. 
But part of that for me is getting cold. And that's what I've learned um, since writing the book. As part of writing the book, I started swimming in February, um, which seemed absolutely crazy at the time. But I've got so much out of that. And, and getting into the cold water really changes how I feel about my body and my mind. Um, as you say, it presses this reset button for me and just gives me 10 minutes out of life, really. Um, and in fact, when it comes to the summer now, I get a bit bored because I just think, oh, it's not cold enough. <laughs> so what does the cold do to you? How does it make you feel different? Well, for me, I think um, it makes me feel brave. It's like I do this brave thing and it makes me feel brave back. It's like having um, this enthusiasm reflected back at me and I never regret doing it. When I'm in the water, um, I get this real well I mean people call it the swimmer's high I get this sense of feeling immensely happy and chatty uh, and kind of in love with the whole universe for a while um, but also I think it draws you straight into the present particularly when it's very cold because you're really paying attention to how your body feels you're making sure that you don't stay in too long um, you're trying to warm yourself up a bit while you're in the water um, and your brain isn't anywhere else than just in that moment when you're swimming in cold water so you forget all your troubles and it's it's really really wonderful but I should say you know I still have all the same difficulties that everyone else has getting in it's not like I don't feel it <laughs> I know that's the worst bit isn't it getting in <laughs> yeah I mean you learn to talk yourself through it that's the thing I mean once you've done it a few times you know that it's going to be okay yeah when I first started I thought that I was going to die you know? <laughs> but now I've learned I don't so that's fine it just made me think about it differently you know sort of just actually enjoying the water and um I thought that was a nice way to do it when you're in the water and you said you know it keeps your mind in the present moment does it help you more to be in flow um yeah I mean I I guess I don't tend to think about flow states when I think about swimming I mean I think about flow states when I think I'm about walking actually that's that's what yeah. turns into a flow state um swimming I think is actually much more punchy than that in lots of ways I mean when I'm walking I'm often uh, doing a lot of thinking and imagining and uh planning whereas when I'm swimming I'm actually not doing any of those things I'm just swimming so when you're walking, are you thinking about writing projects? Is that where you get sort of inspiration and ideas? Yeah, I mean, I often, if I've got the seed of an idea, I often take it for a walk. Or if I'm a bit stuck, I'll often take those thoughts for a walk. Um, I don't actually find it useful consciously thinking about what I'm working on, to be honest. I find it more useful to do something that lets it tick away at the back of my mind while I'm doing other things. Um, mm -hmm. I often think that active thinking is just really destructive of creative life. It, it kind of you you're applying a kind of thinking to it that isn't how any of it works. And for me, it's much more instinctive than that. Um, and I actually have to take my mind off of it in order to do really effective thinking about it. That's not an easy thing to do, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's like allowing things to percolate. Mm, yeah that's that's um, how you phrase it yeah, yeah yeah sometimes you've just got to kind of think of an idea but then almost put it to one side and let it just mull over in your head 
Yeah, I mean, I think you have to, I mean, I, I don't know about other creative practices, but I think certainly for writing, you have to resist the urge to bully an idea into submission. I, and I think that's what we kind of do in the rest of life quite often. You know, if the house needs cleaning, the only way to clean the house is to get up and do it, you know, and to force that on the world. Um, if a book needs to be written, you need to spend more time thinking than actually writing. Um, and so you need to break your own work ethic in a funny kind of a way. I mean, I, I have a massive work ethic. I work far too hard on everything. I throw myself at anything I'm doing. Um, but when I'm writing, I need to not do that, actually. I need to let those ideas really find their fullest, fullest extent, but also let my brain make connections that I wouldn't consciously make. I'm, I'm looking for the more interesting leaps that happen. Um, and I, I mean, so this is something I learned a huge amount about when I was writing The Electricity of Every Living Thing, um, when I walked the southwest coast path. Um, and that taught me that there's actually a phase of thinking that happens three hours into a walk. I'd never walked for more than three hours before, so I didn't know that. Um, but there's something about being too tired for conscious thinking um, that lets the really magical ideas start to come up. And, and that is very connective, flow-like thinking for me. That's really interesting. I didn't know about that at all. Mm. And one of the things that I loved about the book was all the different references that you make. Um, and somebody um, who's asked a question, actually, which I'll ask you in a bit, she's called it Reading Rabbit Holes. Yes. And I love the way you kind of, you gave us all these different references and you talked about um, different cultural things and different things mm. that happen in different countries. Is that from, do you research that or is it something that, is just part of what you know and what you're interested in? Yeah, a little bit of each, I suppose. Um, but I, I guess it just comes from following my own reading rabbit holes um, and research rabbit holes. Um, I mean, when I'm writing, I am looking for interesting new things to bring into the text on a, on a really basic level. Um, and, and of course, this time I was looking for loads of different associations to winter um, and I just followed those lines of interest. And, and most of the time, it's not the first part of that rabbit hole that ends up in the book. It's like the fifth thing, you know. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I'm quite a scattergun reader. I'm not very good at finishing books. I'm not massively interested in, you know, what's uh, what's the kind of current trend. I'm not massively interested mm. in, I don't know. Um, reading in a very linear kind of way or within one genre I love skipping about um I love all kinds of non-fiction um I'm always just looking for those little seeds of ideas that fascinate me um yeah. and that fascination sparks I I go off and follow it and keep following it until it's exhausted normally I think that was what was so enchanting for me about the book it was all these different things that I didn't necessarily know about that were making me think oh that that sounds really interesting. I need to go and look into that more. Um, I love the way that it's called other people to have these rabbit holes. I think that's just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, I, well, I was reading something on your website this morning. Um, I can't remember the guy's name or how you pronounce it, but you've mentioned somebody else. So I've just downloaded his book onto um, <laughs> <Kindle> as well. <laughs> so. That's how it works. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think, well, that's the joy of reading as well. Like you, I'm not a very linear reader. I like to read all sorts of different things. And um, I'm more nonfiction these days than fiction. Mm. Um, it has to be a certain type of fiction for me. But I love nonfiction and I love the memoir type books and mm. reading about other people's experiences. Um, you talk in wintering about a lot of the changes that happened to you. Um, I think the first one was that you gave notice on your job. Hmm. Um, yeah. Right, yeah, I decided to, to give up my academic job, yeah. Yeah, was there a trigger for that? Was it there something that just made you want to initiate that change? Um, I think really it was taking up too much of my time, really. It, you know, it wasn't, wasn't the kind of job that was doable in nine to five. And, you know, that's probably fairly, fairly obvious about that sort of job. Um, mm. But it was getting in the way of me, uh, you know, it was getting in the way of family life and it was getting in the way of my creative life. Um, and so I decided to uh, go back. I'd, I'd only been working there full, full time for three years. So it wasn't actually a, a very big split for me I'm not someone that sticks in jobs for very long um I'm quite easily bored so um I decided that it was far better to go back to doing something freelance um and to be able to kind of make my own time much more really so has that taken you down other paths now I've carried on with my kind of patchwork of a career um I'm doing more editing than I used to, and I'm uh, I work as a reader for a literary scout, um, which I really enjoy. So I get to read lots of books. Um, but no, it wasn't. Uh, it was a planned, you know, it was a planned decision. It wasn't something that I had. Uh, it wasn't a sudden, you know, sudden decision. It was that I I knew that I could draw on those resources, and that I decided on balance. I preferred to go back into having much more flexible time. Really, that's always. Yeah for me the things that I'm doing and the people that I engage with online a lot of them are seeking a slower pace of life um mm -hmm. a lot of them are leaving day jobs like you mm -hmm. um, either being freelance or self-employed and just carving out a different kind of life altogether yeah uh, and you refer to um slowing down letting your spare time expand getting enough sleep and resting as deeply unfashionable but it's <laughs> um and i'm just wondering do you incorporate those sorts of things much more into your life now i do my best um yeah i mean i think we are becoming an increasingly busy society i think we're obsessed with our value being you know expressed by how busy we are um, and I think it's almost seen as embarrassing now to not be busy. You know, if you bump into someone in the street and say, how are you? And, you, and the person will say, I'm busy. And I know I do exactly the same thing. Um, and I often am really busy too. Um, but I think for me, I, I have always looked for this. And I, you know, as I sort of said about my previous job, you know, I adjust away from it when that starts to take over too much because I'm looking for a balance between work and, and and family life and you know the other things that we want to do with our time you know we've all got different hobbies that we want to pursue we've always got different back burner projects um I find it I find that I don't feel fully human if I'm only working um and I don't think work is important enough um to take over our whole existence in the way that I have seen happen to so many people. Yeah. Um, 
And I think we've got to start thinking about healthy balance again um, and think about what happens when those jobs ditch us because they so often do. Yeah. You know, we often don't get the choice to chance to make that choice. Quite often that job will drop us so fast that we don't know where we are. Um, so, yeah, I but on the other hand, like I I do think that your life's work is such an important part of what you do as well. Um, and I think being industrious is really useful. It's just that I think we've got to continually ask the question whether it's meaningful. And yeah. I think it's amazing how quickly things that once have meaning for us can lose their meaning. You know, often we're promoting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. So what would you describe as your life's work? Oh, writing without a doubt. But I mean, I, I've done, I mean, I've done loads of things. I mean, I started off as a teacher. Um, and then I moved into arts education. Um, so since I was, I think, 27 when I left teaching, something like that, um, I have been working in the arts as a writer as well on some level. So I've worked at Tate Britain, I've worked at the National Gallery, I worked for an organisation called Creative Partnerships for a long time, all thinking about how you can engage, you know, what in the arts are called non-accessing groups so people who don't traditionally take part in the arts so not the kind of white middle class you know families who access the arts so often but actually kids from poorer backgrounds from ethnic backgrounds who don't tend to engage with with the arts that kind of thing um so my life's work until I had my son was actually working on how we can tear open all the different kinds of art so I've worked with you know galleries um I've worked in writing a lot um I've worked with operas um all sorts of different arts um and just trying to tear open the doors and and getting people in and getting people to find the meaning that I've found so often uh, and just giving people permission um but when I got pregnant with my son, I was unable to work for a while. Um, and then when I kind of came back into the workplace, I found that a lot of the uh, the government had changed, essentially a lot of funding had been cut. So um, a lot of the places I'd been working before had gone. So since then, uh, I that was when I kind of entered um, into universities um, mm -hmm. and I enjoyed that until it got too responsible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making myself sound really, really irresponsible, uh, and I don't care how I am. Um, <laughs> but you know, throughout that, I've been, I've been writing, and that that is the core of everything I do. And I, I know, regardless of how silly and and frivolous it can often feel to pursue a career in writing, uh, I know that it's important to me. And that if I don't have it, I'm very unhappy. So I think that is always running through what I do, even if I'm doing other stuff to keep a roof over the head at the same time. So have you always written? Is it something that as you did as a child? It was something I did a lot as a child, actually. Um, and I, I was known as like an enthusiastic writer right up until I was about 14 or 15. Um, and actually, I for me, it was a really... A sort of sad thing that happened which was that I got embarrassed about it um and I, up until then I'd been really encouraged by all my teachers but I ended up in the class with one teacher who I mean just thought I was ridiculous and would literally you know having been praised for everything I wrote before would literally hold me back after class to kind of say what is this it isn't the instructions I gave you you know so I think she found my sideways approach to everything completely unbearable mm -hmm. um 
but there was a moment that I wrote about in my last book actually where she kind of led the class in mocking me about something I'd written and about the way I used words um and I gave up and that was it I, I gave up completely and I didn't pick it up again until my mid-20s um but I mean there was always this feeling in the back of my head that I was a writer who was trying not to write um so when I finally gave myself permission to to start writing again I thought I was just going to be able to walk straight back into it and I couldn't I had to I had to really relearn the skill set it's not the same as when you were 14 yeah. Um, and I'd I'd lost a lot of ground and I'd lost a lot of confidence so I had to start more or less from scratch actually I was talking with one of the other people who's done a podcast with me and we both had similar experiences with school and being you know put off something or a teacher trying to put you off or saying you weren't any good at it um and it's such a shame because it should be about helping someone grow their talent and mm. uh, it's really lucky that you your drive to write was so strong that you went back to it yeah I mean that that was I think it was just something I couldn't squash really no matter how, yeah. how hard I tried but I mean it's interesting because I've taught writing a lot now um and I've often had to give really you know not great feedback to particularly adult writers um in my career and that's very hard actually I mean I've I've always thought very hard about that because mm. it's so easy to frame that feedback as you're not very good when that that's just absolutely destructive and it's completely unfair um I always try and frame feedback as you're not there yet, but here are the things that you need to think about next. Um, mm. And you, you know, you still know that sometimes you do hurt people's feelings. I mean, particularly when people have signed up for a, an MA or a degree in writing, the feedback isn't always going to be kind and fluffy. Or it's sorry, actually, that's not true. The feedback is always, hopefully, should be kind, yeah. but it's not always going to be the feedback that you want to hear. And it's not always going to be a moment of coronation and of saying, yes, you're a writer. Well done. Hang on. Let me let me call my publisher and see if they'll take you too. Um, but I do think that we all need to reflect on how we we frame feedback and we need to reflect on how we frame good feedback as well, actually, because I think that can be equally destructive if it's not um, pointing people to the next thing. If it's just saying, right, you're good. There you go. That That's it. You're done. Well done. Um, that's actually quite a dead way to think about creativity too. So, um, yeah, I've I've had to I've probably given the feedback that's put somebody off writing as well myself, but I've always tried very hard not to. Yeah. So some of the listeners to the podcast um, will be writers. What sort of writing routine do you have? Do you do you write every day, or <laughs> do you write in fits and start? What motivates you? <laughs> it's so funny because. Um, I, I'm really anti-routine when it comes to writing and everything that I ever read about writing is always like, you've got to find your routine, you've got to do it every day. People now, there's a new, there's kind of a new fashion, I think, in talking about writing, which is people say, what's your writing ritual? Um, like, I, you know, I slaughter a lamb on my altar first and then I, you know, write in its blood or something. It's just not that interesting. <laughs> um, no, I am... I am very, very bad at having a routine around writing. And um, that's partly because I always have to work alongside it to, you know, make money. And that 
disrupts any routine I could possibly have. Um, I do like to write very early in the morning if I can. So I like to get up at 4.30 or 5 and sit on my sit at my desk for a couple of hours. And that's, uh, I'm an early bird. I love, love early mornings. But also, um, it's because I have a young child who I need to get it in before he wakes up and starts asking me questions about Pokemon endlessly. Um, <laughs> I find that I don't like writing in the same place every time. Um, I particularly hate writing at my own desk because it always gets covered in books and pieces. Of, I, I, I'm almost tempted to show you my desk right now, but I'm too upset about how disgusting it is to show you. Um, but my, <laughs> my desk always makes my little heart sink. So I love to write not on my desk because um, my desk for me is associated with work that mm. is creative necessarily. Um, so sometimes you'll find me perched on the dining table. Sometimes I'll be on the sofa with like, um, I worry about my neck a lot. So I, I prop up my laptop on like 20 cushions and I have all these kind of weird systems to try and get the screen level with my eyes. So I'm not slouching. I slouch anyway. Um, sometimes I work in cafes, sometimes I work in libraries. Um, I used to have a beautiful writing studio. Well, I say a beautiful writing studio. I mean, it, it was the cupboard in an artist studio that I said, do you think I could rent that? And they let me for a while. I liked that. That was nice. Okay. Um, nice. <laughs> it was nice. It was a it was a room of my own, even if it was only a meter square and absolutely freezing. It was mine. Yeah. I currently I've just joined a co-working space for creative people um, and deliberately joined one that isn't in my own town um, because I actually like the commute. I like that process of switching onto my writing brain when I'm moving between the locations. Mm. Um, so that that's pleasing me a great deal at the moment. Um, but yeah, sorry, no routine at all. And when I mean, at the beginning of a book, I'll do a little bit here and there. By the end of a book, I'll be, you know, the last month, I'll be completely 100% engaged in it and just doing nothing else. And I can talk about nothing else. And I'm completely unbearable to be around. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really random. It's so disappointing. It's just I, there's no advice to be gleaned from what I'm telling you. It's just nothing. <laughs> I'm just interested. I'm just interested to know how people do things. And um, so you do you write all your books on a computer, on a laptop. Yeah. Notes yeah. Or... yeah, I haven't. I always have a notebook. Um, so often I'll um, make uh, pages and pages of notes first um, and then that will get turned into text. Um, but again, I'm quite random, really. Sometimes I'll start on the screen. Sometimes I'll start in the in the notebook. Um, sometimes I'll find myself making a load of voice memos. <laughs> um, I I think I mean in a way I suppose I think I must be quite comforting to uh, to writers who are living busy lives because actually I think so much of the writing advice is pitched at people who've got infinite time and they can set up all these different rituals and you know I hear people say well you've got to walk every day you've got to do morning pages every day you've got to um, do warm-up exercises you know uh, you've got to watch this you've got to do that you've got to read before you write I think I am the person who proves that you can still do it if you don't follow any of the rules <laughs> whatsoever you know if you forget to write for three months at a time and then go back to it really intensely it's fine you know I I worry that we are constantly closing the barriers around the creative arts in general and making them sound hard because we want to make ourselves look important and that we've done a hard thing. 
Um, and they are hard, but they're not hard for the reasons we make them. The hardness is the sort of battle against your own soul that you take part in to make your work as good as it could possibly be. Um, but there's so many different ways of approaching them and every single writer has got a different way to do it. Mm. I think that bit you just said about the battle with your own soul, um, <laughs> that I think is one of the key things. I think whatever you're doing, it's that's often the challenge. Um, mm. I know in the sort of things that I'm doing, the challenge is to be seen as well. Do you yeah. ever have any issues with, um, I don't know what your your sort of take would be on visibility um but you know in your books how how visible um do you want to be and is that a challenge to do that yeah I mean I I find the visibility part of writing really uncomfortable actually I see writing as a private act um it that's how it feels to me it feels like this weird secret that I keep to myself that I'm doing you know and every book is like a secret love affair I don't talk to other people about it. I'm not a member of a writer. You know, here's other things that I do wrong. You know, I'm not a member of a writer's group. I don't have beta readers. <laughs> you know, when my agencies, it's just the first person to see whatever I've done. Um, and so, yeah, I find the process of sharing the work really difficult and embarrassing. I've, I've been less embarrassed with this book because I think I'm getting more used to it. Um, but this is my seventh book I've written now. So you'd hope I was used to it, really um but yeah it's it's it feels silly when other people are going out and you know doing surgery and building houses to say oh I wrote a book <laughs> you know I sat and I sat and made stuff up um I still can feel very very silly about that and and a bit ashamed almost um but it's what I do you know and and I I've thought a lot about whether I should perhaps give myself the option to just write and not share it. But actually the conversations that come out of it are part of the process for me. And I, as, mm. as sort of cringy as I find it sometimes, I get so much out of talking to people. Um, and I don't know that, that, that kind of big sharing of work that happens that makes everything interlinked. And I think, writing is a, a very kind of thin process if it doesn't happen as part of a community and as part of a, a society mm. so I go out there and make myself visible um however um people are beginning to recognize me at festivals and things like that and I don't like that one bit I really don't like that I was approached by a woman last week when I was attending an event not appearing at but attending an event at, at, at Faversham Literary Festival and I was in a cafe and I was putting my lipstick on using the camera from my phone and she came and said oh, Catherine and I was like do I know you? <laughs> um so I'm I'm liking that a lot less and the and the rumor got back to my son uh, last week at school that I'm a famous writer and I've had to put him very straight on that I'm absolutely not a famous writer I am a writer but I am only famous in my own backyard. <laughs> and that's just how I like it. Well, I can tell you something. You're famous in my study as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I think um, people in other art forms, you know, like actors, for example, or, or music might be seeking fame as part of the end point of their 
um, their practice, you know, that, that fame might have some of the appeal of, of what they're doing. Um, and that really, really is not true for me. I hate the idea of being famous with a passion. It's awful. <laughs> Working in, um, I'm in a Facebook group called Nurture and Thrive. And we've been talking recently about visibility. Mm. And a few things that have popped up are we each have something that we bring to the world. Mm. And it's almost beholden upon us to share it. Mm. And I suppose with you, with your writing, a lot of people will have read this book and taken something from it that yeah. you might never be aware of, but it's it's given them something that only you can um impart yeah and that that's that feels really great actually i think that's a lovely thing to be able to do and i'm really grateful for the response i've had i mean i i, I think you know these days we often hear about our readers response because of social media and i wonder what life must have been like for writers before facebook and twitter and instagram um because must have seemed like a like throwing work into a black hole and I, I I actually ended up asking around recently to to find some writers who you know existed before before then to say what was it like and they said well you would um you'd publish your book and you know your your agent would send you flowers on the day or something um and unless you unless your book hit you know the top 10 list in which case you'd be getting feedback you wouldn't know for months until the first royalty check was due um and all that time you you know you might get the odd letter but it it was so rare for write for readers to consider writing to you and only the most kind of passionate or angry ones would write to you um and then you might get a sense of what had gone on with your book um but of course for us we uh you know we have a build up now we've shared the cover six months before we've you know started to say it's coming up in a month can anyone pre-order um and then you sit and all of these pictures of your cover start appearing with you tagged in them on instagram and it's quite discombobulating at times it's this thing that you made that's run far far out of your control um but at least you get a sense of it i mean it must be awful for authors who you know who people have become very angry with their book on mass i mean i can't can only imagine how difficult those moments are um or people whose book is you know there's a consensus develops that it's terrible somehow um but you know on the other hand when it's positive it's really really affirming and lovely that's one of the nice things for me when you know like i i found you on instagram and i was able mm -hmm. to you a message and tag you into a post and that's as a reader of something that I really enjoyed that's such a lovely thing to be able to do um in the past I used to write snail mail letters oh, did you? Thought, yeah that I really loved then <laughs> I'd you know write off a letter to them and find their publisher's address or whatever and oh, that's such a nice time <laughs> you still, I mean, sometimes I still do get handwritten letters, interestingly, and, you know, they either go by the agent or by the publisher. Mm. Um, and it's such a thrill, actually. <laughs> it's a real, it's a really lovely thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's so generous that, that readers, you know, come and say hello. I mean, I think that's just a lovely, a lovely, lovely thing. And 
I, I saw a thing going around recently on Twitter that uh, that some writer or other, I can't even remember who it was, had said, oh, it's so annoying just having to deal with the public. And I was like, wow. So don't publish books then. I mean, you don't have, nobody's forcing you to put them out there. But if people are being kind enough to, to check in with you and, and tell you something that they got from your book, that's amazing. And we should never, ever be cross about that. No, I agree. I think, you know, when you meet somebody that you really admire and, you know, they just say hello and thanks for reading my book or whatever the situation is. It just just gives you that nice warm feeling. And um, but it's, it does you good, too, doesn't it? I mean, it's a two way process. It's a bit yeah. like um, if I ever hear a compliment, I'll always pass that compliment on to the person, you know, that it was spoken about. And I just think you're just forming part of a lovely network of, of happiness, then, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we definitely need a lot more of that. Yes. So has writing wintering changed you at all? Have you finished the book and um, reflected on it? And have you evolved in any way whilst you've been writing it? Has anything changed for you? Yeah, I mean, whenever I sit down to write a book, I always write to learn. Um, so I, I, I'm not interested in flowing out stuff that I already know. So it's always a process of learning for me. Um, and I mean, obviously, I learned loads of geeky details about folklore and science and, you know, bees and all sorts of things. And I was writing it. But also it made me really sit down and analyse the shape of a, of a human winter, of, of the ways that we fall out of life sometimes. And to think about how that has a beginning, a middle and end. Um, and also to think about the ways that we can alter our behaviour during those moments um, to not. I mean, you, I'm not ever suggesting that you can make them over and done with quicker or that you can somehow ameliorate them or, or make them less painful because that's the nature of them. Um, but I do think that you can respond to them in a way that allows you to kind of get the measure of them um, and mm -hmm. to understand what they are and what they're doing um, and to mark out the time and to know that they will eventually come to an end. Um, so, yeah, I, I learned so much about that when I was writing the book um, and I learned about the value of the cold itself um, I learned about the way that you can watch nature uh, to, to see the changes it's making on a micro level um, and in fact since publishing the book someone wrote to me and told me that um, in Japan they recognise 24 seasons instead wow. of four um, so roughly every two weeks they're noting a a minor change that just ticks yeah. us on that little bit further. Um, and I think that that is absolutely wonderful. And I think those are the things that can really help to get us through. I agree with you. And I think um, there is, you know, when you're in these phases, you call it winter. And um, in what I do, I call it the void. And it's sort of you, something has happened, but you're in this holding space. Mm -hmm. And I always think there are things you can do that mm. won't shorten that time, but will help you along. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, you kind of talk about it a lot in wintering as well. We must talk about the dormouse. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a photograph somewhere as well of it. I'm, I don't know whether it was on your Instagram, yes. but 
that must have been an incredible moment to just have the dormouse in your, the palm of your hand. Yeah, it was amazing. So I um, I wanted to think about hibernation as part of the book. Um, and I, I'm lucky enough to live near the Wildwood Trust, um, which is this amazing, I mean, it, it, I'm not sure what you call it. It's not a zoo. Um, it's not a wildlife park, but it's a, it's a conservation centre for animals of the European North. Um, and, they, and it's based on this idea of an imagined kind of ancestral wildwood across Europe where all of these different animals would be roaming. So um, they, as part of their work, look after native uh, British wildlife uh, that is in need of looking after for whatever reason. And they have a specific dormice conservator um, who takes care of the, the poor little dormice who get dug up every year because they make their nests on the ground and cover themselves with leaves and it's really hard to spot them. Mm. Um, and a few will get dug up all the time, uh, sometimes by dogs. So she says it's her own dog starts chewing a box next to her. Um, sometimes by, you know, gardeners. Um, yeah. So anyway, so these these dormice arrive. They've often, they're often orphaned as well. Um, and so what they do is they hibernate the dormice in a kind of controlled way and, and keep checking in with them to make sure that they are not losing too much weight and, and not dehydrating. Um, and so every couple of weeks they have to open up little dormice boxes with the sleeping cold up, dorm cold up dormice in and weigh them. And so when I contacted them, I said, well, you know, we're going to weigh the dormice next week. Do you want to come? I was like, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so I, I held two um, completely, um, completely, completely torpid dormice. Um, Freckle the dog, <laughs> and I will throw you out if I have to. Um, yeah, so I held two, two torpid dormice um, as they were weighed and they are so beautiful. They're about the size of a golf ball. Um, and they are ice cold. They get their body temperature down to three degrees as part of their hibernation. Um, but they are, at the same time, you can tell they're not dead because they're squishy. Um, and that's because they lay on all this liquid fat just under the skin that makes them really squishy. And they're incredibly soft and incredibly beautiful. And I kind of was trying... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I should admit this. I was trying to find a way to sneak a sniff in because I just wanted to smell them because they're so lovely. And so I was trying to very discreetly, like, you know, <laughs> this dormouse. Um, I think they probably noticed, but they they smell good. So I have to say they smell really good too. <laughs> well, that's quite funny. My husband is blind. So he will sniff all sorts of things. <laughs> he would have been sniffing them as well. One of the people that follows me on Instagram um, said to ask you, um, and she's called Catherine as well, um, but she spells it K-A-T-H-R-Y-N, and oh. she's a book bug on Instagram. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> Do you know her? I Yeah, I've come across her. Yeah, yeah, so she wanted to know, what are you going to write about next? Well, I have just been working on a proposal for my next book. Um, so I can't guarantee that this will be the one that ends up getting published because there's always lots of toing and froing. Um, but my plan at the moment is to write a book about uh, humility and the value of humility and how important it is for um, for current life, essentially. Um, I'm fascinated by that at the moment. I think we're in an age where 
humility has become a bit of a dirty word. Um, and I think we are being increasingly taken over by people who are not humble enough and don't think hard enough about their place in this world. Um, so yes, that's my, that's my plan. I'd like to write about humility next. That sounds really interesting. I mean, I'm looking for a way to sniff a dormouse as part of the process, but I've not yet. <laughs> Maybe I need a squirrel instead. I'd, I'd take a squirrel <laughs> or an otter. I mean, I could work with otters. Um, yeah. <laughs> hibernate. I'm not sure. I think I'm not sure if they hibernate or not. What was that? What who hibernate? Sorry. Squirrels. I don't know if squirrels hibernate. No, squirrels actually don't hibernate. Um, they uh, they can go into torpid states, but they don't hibernate. You mentioned the importance of quiet pleasures. Mm. What what are some of your quiet pleasures? Oh, I love lighting a fire on a cold afternoon. Um, and I love sitting and reading with a cup of tea or a gin martini. Uh, I'm not fussy witch. Um, <laughs> I don't like baking, but I do like cooking. Um, you know, I, I don't like the precision of baking. I love having a fridge full of ingredients and just spending an afternoon cooking my way through them. I find that really, really relaxing. And I love a really scaldingly hot bath with a candle on. I just, mm, would, <laughs> if, I could, if I could spend my life in the bath, I would absolutely do that. <laughs> Those sound lovely. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think probably I'm not very different from everyone else on that. No. But yeah, I I used to be a knitter, but um, I don't really seem to get around to it. And I've always been terrible at it. So knitting kind of is, is a slightly angry process for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not very good at knitting. I <laughs> not, not terribly long ago, I tried to knit a scarf. And, you know, you have to sort of cast on so many stitches. Yeah. So I did that. And then every row had a different number of stitches. I was either dropping them or making them up. So in the end, I got my mum to do it. <laughs> That's cheating. <laughs> well, Catherine, it, I can't tell you what a joy it's been having this conversation with you. And I've been so looking forward to it since... I came across wintering and I think I probably contacted you very soon after that. Um, but thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. It's been really fun. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast as much as I did. You can find me online at Seed to Source. And if you'd like to share your story of personal change, do get in touch. Thanks for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful week.